From the book of Haggai, chapter 1, starting with verse 15. On the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains strong among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is described, desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The word of the Lord. From the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Concerning the coming of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? The word of the Lord. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die for they're like the angels. They are God's children since they are the children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. 
Y'all may be seated. Uh, before I jump in today, I, I want to say um, I want to say a special thank you. Just felt like I wanted to say this today to um, to Hannah and Tyler. Um, these guys are have been so faithful for so long, and continue to be faithful in leading us three out of four Sundays in music. Um, I was going to say three out of four Sundays every week. That doesn't make any sense. Um, three out of four Sundays every month. And, and they are so faithful and they do such a great job and they volunteer and they put a lot of time and effort into this. And so I want to say a special thank you to Hannah and Tyler this morning. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll tell Hannah later, so I'll be fine. Um, uh, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, so Ashley and I are currently in this process of trying to find a home. Many of you have been through this or are going through this now. We've lived here in Nashville now for over six years. And like many, we are kicking ourselves that we didn't try to do this earlier because <laughs> this market has changed so much. We look back at what the housing prices would have been when we first moved here and what they are now. It's just all changed. Nashville has changed so much. It's so difficult to find the right home now. It's so competitive. It's hard. Our budget is humble. And most of the places we look at need quite a bit of work. And so we have to go into our house searches not by saying, let's find the house that's the dream, right? You go into the house search by saying, wow, this cruddy looking house could be the dream someday, right? <laughs> Isn't that what we do sometimes with, with those kind of things? Unlike us, my parents are really good at fixing up houses. So this is what they've done. They've done this their whole lives. My dad was a contractor right out of college. They still today buy houses. They fix them up. They enjoy doing that. I, for somehow genetically, just didn't get that part <laughs> passed down to me. But they're so good at this. This is what they do. And uh, I remember when I was in fifth grade, my parents bought a large home in a really nice neighborhood that was really, really cruddy. <laughs> um, they wanted to be in this neighborhood and they knew that they could fix up a house and they bought this home that was just in horrible repair. The neighbors all wanted it torn down and they basically had to gut the entire place and start all over again. Okay, so this house, the, the, um, it was a, a single woman who lived there and she had all of her pets in the house and rarely let them outside. Okay, so you can imagine, there's pet stains everywhere and it's just awful. She was also a smoker indoors all the time and it was just, just significant. So they had to tear out all the flooring in the entire house. They replaced every door in the house and the, all, they had a lot of doors in, in every part of the house, painted everything, redid all the bathrooms completely. In fact, to this day, when I go to their house, I don't know that there's one item in the entire house that's original to the house. They've redone everything over the course of time. And I remember the outside, the pool was so corroded, the pool. Usually when they clean a pool, they acidize a pool, they have to do it once or maybe twice. And this pool had to be acidized six, six times in order to get it to where it needed to be. I remember as kids, when my dad would fix up the house, that our favorite thing to do was to go pick out frogs out of the swimming pool and line them up on the diving board <laughs> to dive in. That's probably a horrible thing to do to animals, but, but, we, but we would do that at the time. It just shows you how, how gross the house was. Um, but my parents did it, and decades later, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place that they've turned into this. My parents were good at looking at what would be rather than what is, okay? What, looking through the glasses of what could be and what would be rather than what is. And I, 
I thought about Christian hope when I thought about this story. By our worldly standards, our faith doesn't always look like much, does it? Um, Again, I had another reminder. I know I tell you about these all the time, but I had another reminder this week in sharing with someone that I'm a pastor who started a church, somebody that that doesn't mean really much to them. <laughs> I'll just say it that way. And, uh, and, and so they kind of responded, oh, okay, how do you do that? That's fine. To the world, our faith and what we do, it, it just doesn't really look like much. And I'm not saying it looks like a broken down house, but it certainly doesn't always look spectacular, okay? We live quiet lives of faith, hope, and love. We cultivate the fruit of the spirit in our lives. We worship regularly. We come to this place. Some of you make a pilgrimage from far away every Sunday to come to this place and worship. We pray. We receive and serve the sacraments, which are real bread and wine and real water. We read the story of God's people over and over again. And sure, we can try to make that look fancy. We can. We can add smoke machines. We can add loud music. We can, our sermon videos might go viral. You know, and all of that is good, um, fine. Uh, sometimes dramatic things happen, and I believe in that. I believe in miracles. I believe that God often does spectacular things to draw people to faith. I believe that it's good when churches make headlines for something good that they do, but that's not most of faith. That sometimes happens, but it's not most of the time what happens. Most of our faith and our worship is lived out in everyday actions, everyday behaviors, everyday rhythms that often no one sees. And frankly, sometimes as a Christian, that can be discouraging. We can go, I signed up for this life-altering thing. I don't know about you, but some of us responded to faith for the first time with an altar call. Or somebody came to the faith and they gave a, or gave, came to the a stage, gave a dramatic presentation, and then we responded, and we responded to something life-altering. And then years go by and we go, I can't really measure that change. It doesn't look as spectacular as maybe I thought or felt in that moment. So what do we do about that? Well, today we hear the word of the Lord from Haggai. And this story is, it takes place in an interesting time in Israel's history. Um, They have been, the children of Israel have been in exile in Babylon. The Babylonian empire has taken over the civilized world. And what they did is what most empires would do is they would take a good chunk of the people from Israel and scatter them all throughout the rest of the empire. This is called the diaspora. It's a fancy word for this, but it's a scattering of God's people all over. And when they scattered, the religion of Judaism scattered as well. Okay. So they would go and scatter culturally, but their religion also scattered with them. And in this story, they have returned and they begin to rebuild their temple. So their temple had been destroyed. And they, as a group of people, they're like, we're back in our hometown or in our homeland, and we're going to rebuild God's temple so that we can worship the way that we used to. But it says of their work, so they start building the temple. And then it says, it is in their sight as nothing. What's that mean? Well, it means that the rebuilt temple is not as much of a spectacle as they remember it being or they thought it would be. So they start rebuilding the temple and they go, "Um, yeah, this really isn't as fancy as we thought. This isn't as special as we thought. We're not getting the temple vibes and feelings that we thought that we were going to get when we first started rebuilding this. And here's God's word to Israel's leaders. Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, 
says the Lord. Zerubbabel is a great, we need to bring that back. Start naming your kids things like Zerubbabel. It's just great. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you, do not fear. There is a reminder here that God always dwells with his people. Even when things don't look or feel as spectacular as expected, God reminds them he is with them. The reality is that God is not always in the spectacular. He is perhaps most often in the quiet and in the unexpected things. But God says something is coming, that God will do something. And the word is, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I like to read all of the Bible, what we call Christocentrically. So we always read all of scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, through the lens of Jesus, okay? Jesus is our starting point. So if we read this back, if we read Jesus back into the Old Testament, we see this sign among the children of Israel that God is about to do something new. And the splendor of this new thing that God is about to do is different from the, spl- the old splendor. And it's going to be better. And it's gonna be completely unexpected. God is about to do something unexpected in Jesus. This temple, God's home, this place where heaven and earth meet is about to find its fulfillment and its replacement in Jesus Christ. And we see that, that Jesus did things that the temple couldn't do. For so long, God's dwelling place was in one place, in one building. But because of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that begins to go out that more and more people are brought into God's family. But think about this. Jesus was not spectacular in the worldly sense. We could look at his life and we could say that he wasn't on the surface epic or glorious in the way of this world. His glory was hidden. He was a Jewish teacher in the small region of Palestine among peasants. What is that about? God's glory looks different from our glory. It always does. God often works in hidden things, in unexpected things, and yet his glory is greater than anything else that we could ever see. Let's go back to a minute to this time of exile, the diaspora that we talked about, where the Jews were scattered all around the Babylonian empire. And the result of that story is you've got all these Jewish people living all throughout all different groups of people and among Gentiles. And a lot of the Gentiles, because they're rubbing shoulders with the Jewish people, begin to hear God's story. They begin to hear the story of God's people. So you have all these Gentiles who would not otherwise hear it, hearing it because they get to know the Jewish people. So they encountered this story for the first time. Many people learned and experienced the one true God. And one of the things we see in early church history is this scattering of the Jews is one of the many things that set the stage for Christianity to grow and flourish among the Gentiles. Think about it for a minute. Many Gentiles already knew the story of Israel and they were able to more quickly accept the story of Jesus. 
So this time that was difficult for the Jewish people, this time that was um, awful being away from their land was also the time that set the stage for something bigger and something greater. And even when they couldn't see that spectacular thing happening, God was doing something under the surface. If Judaism would have stayed near the temple in Jerusalem, people wouldn't experience this God. And Jesus has now done something the temple could never do. The call goes out. God's scattering and the initial steps to rebuild the temple set the stage for the expansion of Christianity. So think about it this way. You have no idea what God is doing in your faithfulness right now. In your everyday acts of faithfulness, you have no idea what God is doing. There's this really great story, and maybe I've told this story before, but there's this story of this missionary in Africa. I think it was in the 1800s, um, early 1900s. And he, um, he went and, and he spent his, most of his entire life in Africa, and he went all along the coastline and was trying to tell people about the story of Jesus. Not one person in his entire lifetime came to faith in Christ. They all rejected him. And he kept plugging away over and over again until finally he said, I need to retire. I'm not doing well with my health. He came back to, I think it was the United States, came back to the United States, retired. Years and years later, like probably last decade, uh, missionaries went to this place in Africa and they went from village to village. And it was a pretty unexplored place. And they expected to find no Christians anywhere. And as they traveled down the coastline of Africa, not only did they find Christians there, they found established churches all along the coastline of Africa. Some of them had amphitheater-like church buildings. <laughs> Some of them had gospel choirs that would travel to the other churches back and forth. And so finally they asked the question, how did you guys hear about this? And they tried to trace it back. How did you guys hear the story? And of course you realize by now that they traced it back to this one guy. And all they knew was his first name and he was Baptist. And that's all that they knew. And they were able to identify this guy who in his journals wrote that he knew he was a failure as a missionary. And yet God did something in his life. Isn't that powerful? Maybe? Yeah, amen. Um, so God does something in our faithfulness even when we don't see it. This is where if I were a prosperity preacher, I would say something like, so when you face a setback, don't take a step back. Get ready for the comeback. Gosh, you guys are hard this morning. You're wake, you need to give me a smile or something, right? Um, thank you, thank you. And it is true that our struggles don't last forever. And I, I believe this. I think when I heard these prosperity uh, preachers growing up, I do believe to an extent that when we go through suffering, that God is doing something in our lives that we may be able to see that there may be something next year or in 10 years that we see in our lives that changes. But here's the difficult thing to accept as a Christian. The difficult thing is as a Christian, we may never see on this side of God's new world the result of our faithfulness. We may not, but God is still working and there is joy and there is strength in that. The children of Israel who were unimpressed with the temple they were building didn't live long enough to see Jesus, but they were part of something that God was doing. And that hope changed how they lived in the present life. God is taking your faithfulness today and doing something with it. And that doesn't mean you'll necessarily see financial success in your life, payoff, notoriety, 
but we can have a deeper fulfillment in living how God has called us to live right where we are. When we live into that, that will always cause two things. It will always cause grief and rejoicing. So the Christian life is grieving the things that we used to chase because we don't chase the things that the world chases, okay? So we have to let that go and we grieve over that. But we also rejoice because God has called us to a greater glory and when we have eyes to see it, we can recognize the beauty of the things in this world that are centered on faith, hope, and love. So going back to my prosperity preacher analogy, I I used to think of it that way. I used to think if you're going through a struggle right now, just trust because eventually in this life, all your dreams will come true if you just have faith. But I think that's true to a point, but it actually goes much deeper. God recalibrates your dreams. God changes what you hope for and what you long for. And even if you don't see that in this life, there's a fulfillment that comes from being part of something deeper and greater. Our text in 2 Thessalonians is, uh, you may have noticed that it has some kind of cryptic, odd things to it, that it's been used in all kinds of ways in discussions about the end times. So, and it's true that Paul and his followers seem to think that Jesus is coming back any day, okay? So this is the first century and they're sitting around and they're waiting for Jesus to come back. He's gonna come back this weekend probably. So we just need to hold on tight, right? And the people that he's writing to are afraid that they're going to miss the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord throughout the Bible often meant large catastrophic events. It didn't always mean the final event, the end of the world, but it it meant that there was this big event of judgment, this big significant shaking that would happen. And this time that this letter is being written in was a time of ever-increasing political tensions. There were violent revolutions. And Paul may be looking at this and foreseeing that there would be in the future the destruction of the Jewish way of life. In fact, the destruction of the temple itself. Paul is able to foresee that, that this is coming, this revolution is going to happen and you need to be prepared for it. The current emperor of the day was a guy named Caligula, who if you've read Roman history was a rough character. And he believed that he was God. He ordered a huge statue of himself to be placed in the temple in Jerusalem, okay? And the Jews, of course, if you put a statue of a Roman empire in the middle of the temple of Jerusalem, they protested. They stood up and said, no, we can't do that. He was suddenly murdered in 41 AD, which prevented a major war from breaking out. And instead, the war was delayed 25 years when Rome destroyed the Jerusalem temple. So the people are probably talking amongst themselves saying, was that major event that happened with Caligula, was that it? Was that the day of the Lord? Was that the great day that would usher in Christ's return? I think we still ask those questions. When we go through suffering in this life, like we still ask, Lord, is it about time for you to return now? (laughs) Is it about time for you to make things right? because our world seems really dark. I'm reading a book right now about Oklahoma City. You guys know I'm from Oklahoma. Tulsa and Oklahoma City have a little bit of a rivalry, so I like reading books about Oklahoma City that disparage them a little bit. But, But no, one of the epic things in Oklahoma that did happen that was really awful and sad that shook the state is the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. 
And I grew up there in, in Oklahoma, and it was the biggest event ever there. I mean, it, it shook our, our state. It, it shook uh, many of my friends, had uh, relatives who worked in Tulsa's downtown federal building and thought maybe we were next. You know, you just didn't know. Um, it shocked everybody. And, and I was surprised when I was reading this book how even though it was such a close thing and such a significant thing in my life, I temporarily forgot about it. I mean, I, we've had so many catastrophic events in our world that I kind of forgot, oh yeah, it was such a huge deal. I mean, after all, five years after that, we had the Columbine shooting, which was rocking, right? Seven years later, we had 9-11, right? We've now had many, many, many mass shootings. Our nation and our world has seen a lot. And I think as the church, we rightly sit here and cry, how long, oh Lord, how long will you tarry? When will you come and make this right? When will you put this thing together? And Paul says that the day of the Lord, this time of judgment and upheaval can't come, upheaval can't come until he says the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, okay? What does that mean? What is the lawless one? Well, Paul, Paul foresees here that another megalomaniac would probably have the same idea as Caligula. There would be another suffering. There would be another time of difficulty. And Paul would be right. Many Roman emperors would arise proclaiming themselves to be God and do atrocious things. And then Paul speaks of a restrainer. And we don't know who Paul was referring to here. He might be speaking about his own work to restrain the evil one. Um, it could be the work of the church. It could be another political influencer within the Roman government who is holding back the forces of the empire. But one thing is for sure. Paul believes that the world will one day be judged once and for all. And that there will be a lot that happens between now and between then that will shake up the world. There will be a lot of stuff. So what does Paul tell them to do in the midst of all this confusion and suffering? He says, hold fast to the traditions. The NIV translates it, hold fast to the teachings. What are the traditions? What are the teachings? Well, for Paul, we know elsewhere that he means the foundational Christian teachings, the basic facts of the gospel, the central actions of the worshiping church, baptism and Eucharist and the fundamental principles of Christian behavior centered on love. He says, hold on to that stuff. But Paul recognizes in his day, just as we recognize in our day, that holding on to all these things are counterintuitive in a world of such massive upheaval. But this is exactly the kind of thing that will last in God's new world. Paul says that they will last. In fact, Paul says that all the kinds of, in the midst of all the kinds of discord, he says, give thanks to God because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation. And he says he chose you for the first fruits of salvation through sanctification, which is this fancy church word that sometimes we read and we skip over it. But sanctification just means being set apart that he set you apart to be different through your belief in the truth. And I believe it's this holding fast, this holding tight, this holding fast that anticipates and joins God's work in the world. If you know people who come to faith, it, I don't know that it's a coincidence that people often come to faith in times of great pain. The people who I know who their faith gets reignited ignited at a certain point in their life, it's because they've experienced great pain. Maybe they've had, I've had friends who have gone through an addiction and they 
have stepped into a recovery process and they're just discovering, gosh, I can't do this on my own. I need something outside of myself. Some people go through a great loss, realize what, what, is, what is life like after death? And I need a community to surround me, to stand with me in grief. We anticipate that there's something in God that's different. We know that we need to be grounded in something larger than ourselves. I think about when Jesus asked the disciples if they were going to leave him. And they said, where else will we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. We realize we need something beyond ourselves. We need something deeper. Our Luke text today, and I wanna tie all this together in just a few minutes, but our our Luke text today is is odd. I feel like I say that every week. (laughs) The gospels um, display two major opponents of Jesus in the gospels. So you see the Pharisees and you see the Sadducees, all right? The Pharisees were like kind of religious conservatives of the day. So they read the words of the prophets literally And therefore, they believed in miracles, they believed in angels, and they believed in a future resurrection, that one day God would raise all of his people. So they were these religious conservatives that believed in all of those things. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were were very sad, you see. Sorry. Um, Amen. (laughs) They, uh, you guys gave me, few of you gave me a hard time for my puns this week, so I'm trying to be careful. But you remember it, though. That's important. You remember it. It sticks in your brain. So the Sadducees, they only took the first five books of the Old Testament seriously. And they held the words of the prophets loosely, okay? They might've been metaphorical. They might not have been talking about what you think they were talking about. So they didn't believe in a future resurrection. So the Pharisees did believe in a future resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. They were skeptical about it. So they asked Jesus a question about the future resurrection and they're trying to trap him is what they're trying to do. They're trying to paint him as a religious fundamentalist like the Pharisees. So they're trying to get him to say something that's gonna make him sound weird or too conservative. How can you possibly believe in something as silly as a future resurrection is really what the Sadducees are trying to say. And this, along with its parallels in the other gospels, this is the only conversation of substance about the resurrection in any of the gospels which is so weird because the gospels are so, the resurrection is so central to our story. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't talk much about the gospels. Jesus does it, <laughs> or about the resurrection. Jesus does it, but it doesn't, um, doesn't come up in conversation. So the Sadducees paint an absurd, extreme picture, which if you picture what you would do in a debate when you debate a particular point, a lot of us use the most extreme example of the other side in order to trap them. I don't know if you've ever done that before. So in America, there's no quicker way to anger your opponent than to call them a fascist or a communist, right? If you paint their position in the most extreme way possible, you're like shutting them down. You're making them angry, right? So if you are arguing with a conservative, you just wanna convince them that they're a fascist who wants to lock up journalists and promote extreme wealth inequality, like that's what you're trying to do. If you're a Democrat and you want to um, then, you, or if you're arguing with a Democrat, you want to paint their position as if they're trying to take away people's hard-earned money, abolish private property, and lead us toward bread lines eventually. So you're trying to get people in the most extreme positions possible. So the Sadducees, what they do is they take the Pharisees' position that resurrection is real, and they create this absurd, extreme example. Here's the extreme picture they paint. 
Now, there were seven brothers. The first one was married, married a woman, and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? So it's this situation in Jewish culture where if a, um, if a, a, a husband died, then his brother was supposed to step up and care for and to marry his wife, okay? So that she would be cared for and she wouldn't be a widow. And it was the responsibility in that culture. That's kind of how things work. So they're painting this extreme example where there's seven brothers and all of them die and they all marry this same lady. So then they're saying, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? They're trying to paint this absurd, extreme example to trap Jesus and say, see, the resurrection's silly because you can't answer these questions. And it puts Jesus in a weird spot. The Sadducees think he's too conservative because he believes in the resurrection. The Pharisees often worry he's too liberal because he plays games with the law, okay? He doesn't actually play games with the law. They think he plays games with the law. And it's easy when we read this passage to get caught up in the marriage stuff. But what Jesus is doing here is he is re-emphasizing resurrection. He is pointing them to future hope. He is saying the resurrection will indeed happen. In fact, it's about to happen to him in the middle of time, anticipating the day at the end of time when all of God's people will be raised. But Jesus says there is continuity and discontinuity in the resurrection. What does that mean? We see from the accounts after Jesus's resurrection that somehow he's got this body where he can eat fish, He's got scars from his previous life, and yet he also can walk through walls of locked doors. What is going on here? There's some things about the resurrected body that are continuous. There's things that are similar, and there's things that are different. The resurrection is physical, Jesus says, but it's also differently physical. Why is that important to believe? That seems geeky theology stuff. Like, why is that important to believe? Well, it's important to believe for two reasons. First of all, God will never give up on the world he has made. He won't. It is central to his character. If we believe, and a lot of us have been taught this, that God is gonna take this world and just scrap it, that everything that's physical is not important, he's just gonna throw it away and start all over again, that goes against his character. Because his character is he doesn't give up on this world. So he takes physicality and he breathes new life into it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is God will remake the things that are wrong. That's incredibly central to Christian hope. We aren't just trying to get a ticket on the train to heaven so we can escape this wretched place. Neither do we believe that this right here is all that there is. God's going to do something to this. He makes all things new, and that has begun now in Jesus. Now, I know that I just jumped into some waters that are like really, really deep and really sound conceptual, but I believe that this is important. This reality that physical stuff matters and that God is gonna make it new. So I believe when Hendricks and Elsie went through the waters of baptism this last Sunday, Scripture says they are part of God's new creation in that. Like we have joined new creation when we step into the story. Whoa, 
That means that God's creation somehow has begun now and the church has the opportunity to step into that. And we're called to embody God's new world on earth as it is in heaven by how we live. That's what we pray every week. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We live God's new world now. So what's marriage have to do with all this? Well, the quote here is, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They're God's children since they are children of the resurrection. It's possible that what Jesus is saying here is that in God's new world, death will be abolished. So you don't need to carry on the family line in the same way that you do here. Okay, that's possible of what he's saying. But this passage is really hard to accept for those of us who are happily married. (laughs) Um, It is a weird thing to think that this person whom I've committed to, I've committed my life, I've been married to, committed my whole being to, that somehow that marriage will not continue, this relationship will not continue in God's new world. That's a weird, hard, difficult thing. It sounds cruel, honestly. I find it weird that at the end of the wedding vows that the bride and groom commit to each other till death do us part, which is beautiful when you think of how long life is. (laughs) But then if you also think about, well, why do we have to part at all, right? Hasn't death lost its sting? Why therefore does death part us? Well, it's important to remember what marriage is. Marriage is a signpost of God's great love for the whole world. That God's design is that in the marriage relationship, that that love would be a sign and a symbol of God's love for all of the world, for all of creation. It's a reflection of self-sacrifice, of laying down our lives for one another. And that's central to the heart of God. Jesus is saying that there will come a time when that signpost will reach its fulfillment. It's not that it's done away with, as much as we've reached the destination for which the signpost is pointing. And I wish I had an answer to what that looked like, but I think it will have to be consistent with the signpost itself. Does that make sense? God wouldn't ask us to commit to our spouse in one life and then wrench us away from each other in the new world. There has to be consistency there. So for those who are married, Our challenge is to continue to hold on to the signpost, (laughs) continue to point the way. God loves the world, and I'm going to live in my relationship to my spouse in that self-sacrificial giving kind of way. But as intriguing as that question is, I I met with a group of pastors this week who were talking on these texts. And... um, And so I said at the end, I said, so I don't know what it looks like, but somehow marriage is not going to continue in the resurrection. And one of the, one of the pastors said, I think I'll just end the sermon with that (laughs) this week. (laughs) No, he's not really going to do that. But, um, but as intriguing as this question is, the whole marriage thing is not the point of this story. Jesus uses this time to respond to the Sadducees and proclaim future hope. How does he do this? Well, he does this by going back to Exodus. So remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection because they didn't accept the words of the prophets. That's like the back half of the Old Testament. So Jesus goes back to the beginning of the Old Testament and he says, resurrection has been the story from the beginning. At the burning bush, God reveals himself to Moses and he says that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is this significant? Because they're three dead guys. 
These patriarchs, though, according to this passage, are alive to God. And that doesn't mean that the resurrection has already happened, but they are alive in God's presence, that death is not the final word, that it's not the end, that this life is not the end of things, that God is the God of the living, not the dead, as it says here, that there is something else beyond this life. Resurrection, according to Jesus at least, is real. As we close, this, the thread that I believe that runs through all these stories the underwhelming that's experienced in Haggai, the suffering that the Thessalonians are experiencing, and the skepticism of the Sadducees, the thread that comes through the word of the Lord is hope. When things seem underwhelming in your life, unimpressive, when expectations have not been met, God proclaims to us that the splendor we hope for is different from what we expect but it's way better, and that he is with us. Do you ever feel like God has let you down? It's okay to say that. Like God hasn't fulfilled your expectations. My prayer for us is to have eyes to see his glory in new and fresh ways in our lives and in the world. When suffering comes and we keep crying out, just as Christians have done for millennia, God, are you ready to come now? Now can you come and restore things? We hear God's word to hold fast to the traditions, to the teachings, to stay true to the story and to trust we are building for something. And then finally, when things like resurrection are hard to believe, when you feel like you keep toiling at the same thing and it never seems to get better, remember resurrection's real, hope is real. Our God has not given up on us. That's been the story the whole time. And he is going to make broken things whole. And we have the opportunity as the people of God to proclaim that and to live that wholeness in our world and in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, today we come to you and we give you our lives. Every part there are um, many parts of this life where there are unexpected joys and surprises, and we thank you for that. And then there's some parts of life that are disappointing or just downright frustrating, agonizing. Lord, help us in the midst of that to be reminded of your presence. And then, Lord, there are parts of life that are just boring. <laughs> They're just monotonous that just keep going. Help us to be reminded of your presence in that. I pray for new eyes to see today, that we would be able to see the world through your eyes, that we'd be able to see the beauty in addition to the pain, that we'd be able to see the pain rightly and then also see the beauty fully. And that Lord, that you'd remind us that we have a great hope, that you haven't given up on us and that you're making things new. We love you, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.